The following message was given to the North Young Adult Group at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church slash Young Adults. Uh, I'm tasked tonight with unpacking this idea of union with Christ. Okay, I don't know if, uh, if you guys are aware of the schedule at all or not. But, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to do it uh, from a sort of systematic approach where we're going to look at a lot of different texts, right? We're looking at one text in Colossians 2 and verses 6 and 7, those two verses. So if you want to open there, you can. Um, and uh, so we're going, I'm going to touch on union with Christ a little bit, but I'm going to do it uh, quickly and in, within the broader context of a more uh, significant goal for you. Okay, so this is my goal for our time tonight. It's kind of a long sentence, I know. So my aim for tonight is to convince you that because Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of all creative power, the climax of redemptive history, the focus of all ministry, and the source of all knowledge and wisdom, every aspect of your life as a Christian, and especially the life of your mind, and your life with fellow Christians, must be lived out in the same way that you began your life as a Christian. Okay, long sentence, so I'll read again.
an easy passage to look past. In fact, the next verse is, seems way more interesting than this. These couple of verses do sometimes, at least they do to me. I was kind of bummed when I uh, signed up for this slot and Daniel Bushak was going to be next week, and next week is next, the rest of chapter 2. So <laughs> that's the text I wanted to, to teach on, but uh, he, he beat me to it. That verse, though, might sound a little bit different from what I just read here, right? But I'm, I just want to draw some connections here between this. Why, why did I word it the way that I worded it, word it, okay? And uh, to do that, I'm just going to kind of, this is the first time I've been drawing on my, some of the first times I've been drawing on my iPad, so hopefully this will work for me, right? So, the first word in this text is therefore. Okay, we're going to go really quickly through the text, and then I'm going to step back and go a little bit slower. Therefore, means, let's just stop there, right? What, what Paul is saying here is that in light of what he has said before, and I'm going to say, I'm going to, I think, hopefully show you what he has said in Colossians 1, 1 through 2, 5, therefore, do this. Okay? In other words, based on the truths and the doctrine in 1, 1 through 2, 5, you ought to do this. There are no throwaway words here. This is not a throwaway word. There are no throwaway words. Every noun, verb, pronoun, conjunction, grammatical construction, they matter. This matters for understanding what's going on in this text. And, and, and uh, what we see here, that therefore being based on, I think, in 1, 1 through 2, 5, is a description, a proclamation from Paul about who Jesus is. Okay? And it's enlightening then that what he says next is as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Okay, let's stop there. He is about, he has just got done in the context describing for us who this Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord is. And now he's saying, just as you receive that Jesus, not a generic Jesus, not a Jesus made in your own image, but the Jesus I just got done describing to you, by Paul speaking here. The Jesus that I just got done describing to you, that is the Jesus that you receive. And just as you receive him, you need to do something in the same way. That is, so walk in him. This is where union with Christ comes into play. To walk here, that walking does not mean to just trot about, you know, to just move from one end of the room to the other, walking in that sense, right? What it means is living your life, the way you live your life. So walking in him, we could say, is a, every aspect of your life as a Christian. This Christ Jesus, this description of who this Christ Jesus is that you receive, right? I'm going to argue for four things at the beginning of the book. You can see the connection there. Okay. The therefore connects here to this because the reason, based on what you just said, right? And uh, so this walking then here, this union with Christ then for Paul is 
entirely encompassing of your life. And he's describing for here then the question is how are we to live our lives? And, and then he explains what walking looks like, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Okay, so in other words, walking, living your life looks like those things, right? It looks like being rooted and built up in union with them, right? Union with them. Established in the faith. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means, what that looks like. It, it means abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, worshiping together with unbelievers. In fact, all of these qualities, rooted and built up, established, abounding, those are all plural in the text. Everyone is meant to do it. And in fact, later on in Colossians 3.16, he comes back to some of these ideas. In Colossians 3.16, I think you guys covered Colossians, most of Colossians 3, right? All right. So Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There it is, plural to dwell in you or among you richly. In you, here, and among you, richly. What does that look like? It looks like teaching and admonishing one another. And you do that with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we gather in worship together, we're teaching and admonishing one another. We're bringing the word of Christ to each other here, right? It's, we're bringing the faith just as you were taught to each other in those songs, right? And, and we do it, he says, with thankfulness in our hearts. So you see some of these connections, these themes in the letter are already being drawn out here. And so uh, this, these, these realities then, right, involve the life of your mind and your life with fellow Christians, right? And it's you walk as you receive Christ Jesus means that you walk every aspect of your life lived out in the same way that you began your life as a Christian. Right? That's the short version. Let's dig in. I want to do this by answering three questions. So here's the three questions. Who is the Jesus that we receive? Who is it? Who is Paul say that he is? How do we walk in him, in union with him? And how do we walk rooted and built up in him, established in the faith and abounding in thanksgiving? What do those three things mean? How does it help us understand union? So here's the first question. Who is this Jesus that we receive? Now in the, in the text, right, Paul does not uh, use this phrase willy-nilly. Really just because it's theologically true. We all understand the, the theological reality of it in general, right? But he's, it's not just random in the book, okay? We so often read this book in chunks, right? I mean, this Bible reading plan, right? You read, you know, two chapters here, two chapters there, Old Testament, New Testament, maybe something like that. But this book is not meant to be read in chunks only, okay? So sometimes you've got to... You know, all 150 songs in one sitting takes a lot, right? <laughs> but 
But especially a, like a letter like Colossians, 15 minutes, you can read that in 15 minutes. And we're meant to read it as a whole work, not just in parts. And so we see this, his, an argument come forward in what he's saying that fits and works together and flows throughout the whole letter. And, and so instead of reading our Bible in snippets or pieces, uh, we need to read this as a whole unit. And that's part of why I chose this passage, because I think it forms one of the central arguments for this whole letter. So here's at least one reason, and, and, and it, it'll get drawn out some more in my description of who Jesus is. You'll, I think you'll see what's going on. Beginnings and endings in letters or books or stories are really important. When you think about engaging with Colossians or Ephesians or Isaiah or Genesis or Revelation, beginnings and endings are very important in understanding what the heart of the book is about, what the message of the book is about. But from beginning to ending, the, the authors often introduce the, their major themes, the things they want to drive into your heart when you're engaging with the beginning and the end. From the, at the beginning and at the end, at the introduction and at the Makes a good term page for those of you who might still be in college. For those of you who are not, you're free. Uh, I lost my place here. Uh, so, go to Colossians 1 now. Chapter 1. So just flip a, flip a page ahead here. Verse 9 through 14. I'm not going to read through the whole text, but just take a note here at how he introduces his letter, right? So, so the, the first part of his letter is this Thanksgiving section for them, which is really significant. We don't have time to get into you. But after that, he prays a prayer in his introduction to the letter. And we see the major themes of the book, but, but notice some of the similar imagery in this prayer with how he prays in our passage, with what he uh, commands of us, of, the, of his audience in our passage. Okay? So look what he says here. He prays in one nine. That you would be filled with knowledge, spiritual wisdom, and understanding. Okay? Which I think in chapter 2, verse 7, again, is what he means by the faith. Just as you were taught. Right? So the faith is something that's taught to you. So this knowledge here is something that Paul's praying for. And that prayer for knowledge has a purpose. What's that purpose? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. See that same imagery. He describes that walking as bearing fruit, which is actually quite similar to being plant imagery, to being rooted. Just the opposite. Or he says in 111 that you would be strengthened in all power, which is quite similar imagery to being established, to be strengthened, to be established. Right? Similar ideas there. And in, in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, giving thanks, which is, again is a phrase that he's repeated. He said it, and you saw it really later in 316. So Paul here then is praying for the Colossians what it is he's about to command them in our passage to some degree. But this note that this command here in our passage, 2.6, is the first command. It's the first time he gives himself, tells them to do something. Which means that everything else leading up to that is not what we ought to do, but what we ought to believe. It's the theology upon which his, he commands us on. 
It's the reason for his command. For Paul, what you believe is of paramount importance, paramount importance, and connected deeply to how you live your life, whether you realize it or not. Look at the end. Look at chapter 4 and, and, and look at verses 2 through 6. Okay, and we'll notice some similar things here. Right? Here, though, they kind of show up in an opposite order. So verse 2, he says, We must be watchful. He is watchful in prayers. It calls for us to be watchful in our prayers with thanksgiving. Right? In 4, 3 through 4, we are to pray for this gospel proclamation of the message of Christ, which there again ties in this knowledge type teaching, right? That it would be spoken with clarity. And in verses 5 and 6 in chapter 4, he says that Paul commands them to walk. To walk in wisdom towards those outside the church. And to be prepared with gracious and, and winsome speech to share this same Christ that we are to walk in, that he's describing in the first chapter book, that share that same Christ with those around us. So Paul's prayer, chapter 1, this these, what we call the thesis of this book, are both re-articulated, the themes in those books are re-articulated here in the summarizing Paul prayer and evangelism. So here in chapter 2, verse 6 through 7, then in our passage, it represents a hinge point in the letter. This movement from doctrine to righteousness. So I think this is the heart of it. That's why I chose the text. So back to our passage here. Paul notes here this reception of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Right? It's not really him. He just gets done describing who this Jesus is, and that's what that's what we're going to answer here. Okay? So the first thing uh, I think that we see, we're just going to walk through the paragraph. Some of these texts you've seen so far, we're just going to uh, glance here. We're going to tiptoe across them, but so you can see his overarching argument in this book leading up to our passage. So, here in Colossians 2, 6-7, we see, or in, uh, earlier in the book, in Colossians 1, 15-17, which I think Pastor, Pastor Sam came and taught on. Does that sound right? Yeah. Here's what he said. Here's, here's what uh, this passage says about this Jesus. I think. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, he is the great, glorious, powerful representative of the creator of the universe. In fact, he is the means through which the Father created everything. Everything. Right? He perfectly reflects the Father his creative capacity. By him all things were created. All things, right? It doesn't matter what it is. It's everything that you see, this, this, that, and things you don't see. Visible and invisible, right? There isn't anything created that does not find its source and goal in Christ. 
not only do they find their source in gold, but he's also that grand binding agent that holds them together. Not only does he cause them to exist, but he keeps them existing. He keeps us existing. And then Paul keeps going. He's not just the pinnacle of all creative power, but logically following him. And if he's the creator of the universe and has defines everything, right? Then it would make sense that he would also be the climax of redemptive history. So look what he says here in the next section here in 18 and following. Okay? Everything was created through Jesus and sustained by him. Even history is sustained by him. The church is sustained by him. Salvation wrought in that church, in that history, is sustained by him. He was outside of all creation, created it, and now he has entered into creation. He has entered into the very history he created. As the head of the church, died, was raised from the dead, so that, it says, he might be preeminent. See that? So that he might be preeminent. Through Jesus' cross work here, the Father is reconciling everything to himself. This is what it says. And, and through him establishing peace, peace among us, peace among the world, peace everywhere with God. So then in chapter verse 21, it says that you, us, you, me, we're, we're hostile in mind and enemies of Christ and have been reconciled to God through that process. All of redemptive history, all of what went in to savings from the very beginning to the very end finds its climax in Jesus Christ. Even in your salvation. Its center is in Jesus. Then it follows then that he's the focus of all ministry. Look at what Paul says next. Paul says here, his ministry is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now that's a weird phrase, and thankfully I'm on verses 2 through 6 and 7 of chapter 2, not on this, so I don't have to go too deep into it. But I think what he's meaning is Paul's own suffering in ministry is filling out the value of the gospel, not adding anything to it, right? But displaying it for its worth by suffering for it. And in that sense, he fills out the gospel ministry. He proclaims it to those around him. That's what he says. He's, he's spreading the word. He calls this gospel that he's proclaiming a mystery. And he describes that mystery. Why is it the focus of all why is he the focus of all ministry? He describes that mystery as Christ in you. Christ in you. Right? Look what he, he keeps going in verse 28. He describes his ministry here as proclaiming him, proclaiming Christ. That's what ministry is about. It's seeing people come, become mature in Christ. In verse 29, the energy that Paul has in ministry, doing this ministry is an energy to work that Christ is working in him. So, so for Paul, Jesus is, not, Jesus is the goal, the strength, the means, everything regarding ministry. He is the complete focus of all ministry. All gospel ministry finds its 
He's also the source of all knowledge and wisdom. So look at the beginning of chapter 2, right before our class. One of Paul's central burdens in this letter is that his audience not succumb to false teaching. Right? It's, it's tempting. In fact, he says that this false teaching, look at verse 4, are plausible arguments. Plausible arguments. That means, that means they're reasonable. They sound right. They're attractive. Argument. And they're lies. And his burden, his burden is that he must come to this. He goes on then to describe why in relationship to this young man so come to them. It's because in this context he wants them to have full assurance of true knowledge. And that knowledge that, he, that they can have full assurance of is found only in Christ. Right? So look, let's read what he says here. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to know rightly? Think rightly? You want wisdom? It is only found in Jesus. Only. So who is this Jesus then that we've received? He's the pinnacle of all creative power, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He's the climax of redemptive history in 1, 18 through 23. He's the focus of all ministry in verses 24 through 29 of chapter 1. He's the source of all knowledge in chapter 2, verse 25. The whole letter has been describing for us who this Jesus is and Paul's ministry in relationship to him. Right? We serve a mighty king, don't we? But he isn't simply defining who Jesus is. Remember the therefore. He is giving us the reason why we ought to live our life as we have received Christ. It makes it absolutely clear. It's because Jesus is the supreme over all creation. It's because he's supreme in all of redemptive history. It's because all of ministry finds its focus on him. It's because he's the source of all wisdom and knowledge that the ultimate conclusion that we must draw is that we live our life just as we received him. You ought not deny the one who created you, who defines your very existence, you ought not spurn the one who redeemed you within history through his cross work. You ought not work in gospel ministry in such a way that avoids the nature of who Jesus is. You ought not think then that true wisdom and true knowledge can be found in anything else, anywhere else but in him. Paul's logic is sound. Colossians 2, 6 through 7 is ready, a ready and obvious conclusion that the theology of this point has expressed. So then, Hearing and knowing who Jesus is, then what does it mean that we walk in? How do we walk in him? Now, when we're reading through a text like this, we want to read it in context. We don't want to just let all these other passages bear weight on this text before we let the text speak for itself. And that's my burden here. But, however, I think it can be very helpful to see more broadly how Paul talks.
things to be in him. But we often, we come to this phrase like this, in him, when we're thinking or talking about communion with Christ. Now, he uses, Paul uses it all over his letters, but he especially uses it in the book of Colossians and especially in the book of Ephesians. So what I've done here, I've listed out, I went and searched all the places where it says in Christ, in him, or in whom, talking about Jesus, and in relationship to something about us. All right? 20. I found 20 different things. I'm just going to list them out for you. You don't have to look up these passages. 20 different things that are true about you if you're united with Christ by faith. Okay, so here's what it is. In Ephesians 1.3, you are blessed in Christ. 1.4, in Ephesians 1.4, you are chosen in him. In Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14, you are redeemed in him. Union with Christ is the nature of your redemption. We are united with each other in Him. In Ephesians 1.10. We've obtained inheritance in Him. In Ephesians 1.11. We're sealed with the Spirit in Him. In Ephesians 1.13. In Ephesians 2.6. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. In Ephesians 2.10. We're brought near through the blood of Jesus in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2.13. Yes. Confusing, but that's what it says. We grow together as a holy temple in Him, Ephesians 2.21. We're built together into God's dwelling place in Him, Ephesians 2.22. We're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, in Ephesians 3.6. We have boldness and confidence before God in Him, in Ephesians 3.12. We're taught in Him, since the truth is in Jesus, in Ephesians 4.21. We are saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Colossians 1 2. We will be presented mature in Christ. Colossians 1 22. We walk in Him in our captivity. Colossians 2 6. We're rooted and built up in Him in our captivity. Verse 7. We have spiritual circumcision of the heart in Him. In chapter 2, verse 11 of Colossians. And our baptism is in Him. In Colossians 2. And that's just scratching the surface. This is too much to apostle. But can you see here how every aspect of your life as a Christian is bound up in union with Jesus? In our text, more specifically, he explains further what he means by walking into him. Walking is living your life. Right? To walk in Him, it matters then what that means. How do we walk in Him? And re related to that is this idea of as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in Him. That's what it looks like. The reception of Christ Jesus is the way you walk in Him. I think, though, that that answer to that question, how do we walk in Him, can't be answered until we also answer this question. How do we walk rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving? So there's three descriptions here. Right? Rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. So rooted and built up in Him. To be rooted, right, is, a, is planted in Him. 
dig your roots down deep here. He's planted them deep, deeply into the soil of Christ and drawn nutrients from things. We see similar imagery of, of the uh, in Psalm 1 of this man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And the, if your delight is in the law of the Lord, you are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. That tree planted, its roots are deep, drawing nutrients out. So it's this plant imagery. But oddly enough, Paul is the master of mixing metaphors, which I also do quite well. It's only because I uh, typed out my uh, lesson for tonight that I'm not mixing them right now, but it'll come out at some point. Um, he switches to building imagery, construction imagery, right? Plant imagery and construction imagery. And the combination of those two, plant imagery and construction imagery, is actually the very thing that's used in describing the temple. Right? It's, it's, it's reminiscent that the, the Old Testament draws connections, and even the New Testament, in reading the Old Testament, draws connections between the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, and the temple. God's presence in the garden, God's presence in the tabernacle, God's presence in the, in the uh, temple. And, and we've got a whole nother hour and a half lesson in the future, where we can dive deeply into that. We don't have time for that. We're talking about Colossians 2, 6 through 7. But just to give you a glimpse, okay, in 1 Kings 6, 32, we see a description of the temple entrance. Right? And if you read carefully 1 Kings 6, and compare it to Genesis 2 and 3, you'll see multiple ways that they overlap. The imagery that's described in the temple and the, and the garden. Right? But so here, this, this is the clearest, I think. Into the door of the temple was carved two cherubim. And they guard the entrance of the temple representatively in the door. And surrounding them are carvings inlaid into the woodwork, woodwork it says, of palm trees and open flowers. What does that sound like? That sounds like God having put a cherubim in front of, in the garden, to guard the entrance to the garden from it, for Adam and Eve not to be able to get back in. That's exactly what's going on there. Okay? The temple, or the tabernacle, represented the garden of Eden. New creation. Did you know this? The garden was tainted by sin, and here in Israel, in the tabernacle and the temple, was a new creation. And that altered, right? The temple was destroyed. And Paul here is drawing on that rich imagery, that rich lesson, by combining this plant imagery and this building imagery together. He's drawing on this temple imagery to say for us, right, what does it look like to walk in him? It looks like living life as a new creation. To be rooted and built up in him is to be a temple. And Paul talks this way elsewhere, right? So 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Or uh, for Peter even talks this way, 1 Peter 2, 4, when he calls us living stones being built up into a spiritual house. As the body of Christ, we are the temple now. God's presence is here with us. Right? And so to be 
rooted in Bill Belichick means that you have been made into a new creation. And to walk in means to walk in life. The second description here, right, is to be established in the faith. And it's probably here again, and I've, I've alluded to this throughout the lesson so far, but it's a reference to the life of your mind. Why do I say this? Notice how the phrase here, in the faith, doesn't say in faith, but in the faith. And then he qualifies it by calling it, saying, just as you were taught, meaning that the faith is something taught to us. It's doctrine. It's not referring to your belief, per se, though that's part of it. It's talking about what you believe in. The teaching that you were taught, the teaching that the apostles taught us. So to walk in him here looks like God establishing you in certain beliefs. The life of your mind, in other words, is not outside of the bounds of union with Christ. What you believe matters. You, as a Christian, when you receive Christ, were established in what the apostles have taught us, the gospel. And so at a minimum, though, here, I think that Paul is saying that just as the Jesus that you received, as you received him, means you received him as the one who is supreme over creation, redemption, redemptive history, right? Ministry, knowledge, it's those four aspects at the beginning of the letter that so you should ask yourself then, point of application, are you established in that truth? Do you believe? Are you grounded? And are you continuing to seek greater assurance of the understanding of those truths? The very thing that Paul is praying for at the beginning of the letter. But, <clears throat> but in, in thinking about this, don't think that this encompasses only just the basic facts of the gospel. Paul has much broader vision in mind. These truths run about Christ run far deeper than that. Paul is digging deep into this idea in these next few verses, which you're going to cover next week. But just look at chapter 2, verse 8. When he's talking about this life of the mind, here's what he says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Quote. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He's going to spend the rest of chapter 2 unpacking that. But do you catch what he's saying? Christ is being put forward as the standard of all truth comes. All truth comes. All philosophy. All ways of thinking. Okay. That's what in according to means. It means he's the standard. Right? Grammar maps. It's not simply the simple, the glorious truths, right, about the claims of Christ's death and resurrection on, on its own. No, those claims run deep. They're abiding, deep truth claims that regard, are regarded, that impact our understanding and define for us the fabrics of reality. 
you and I must be, in verse 8 here, on guard against these false truth claims that don't meet this standard of Christ, that don't align with the faith as we were taught. More, you'll have more on that next week. But to be established in the faith then, right, to be established in certain truth claims. And the third description here is that we are abounding in thanksgiving, and of course that just means just that, right? Abounding in thanksgiving, that you, that you overflow in thanksgiving. But look, look at the three descriptions here and compare them to each other. To be rooted and built up and to be established are not things you do. They're things that have done, are done to you. Someone else has to do them. They're the passive. They're the passive voice. Here. Sorry, I teach Greek. It just comes out. <laughs> you did not establish yourself in the faith. You did not. You didn't, don't root yourself. You're not building yourself up. God is the one. God is the one doing those things. But notice. Abounding thanksgiving is active. Which is wholly appropriate. Because the only thing that you do in this text that he's describing is not to be root, to root yourself or build yourself up or establish. No, it is to receive those good and gracious gifts. And your response is to give thanks for it. It flows out of that rootedness and built it up in this and establish it in this and see if it moves up. This does not mean that the Christian life is passive. No, uh, in the rest of chapter 2 and in chapter 3, which you've already covered so far, you saw or you're going to see resurrected Christian, the, the life of the mind here in chapter 2, verses 8 through 23, and life together in fellowship with other believers around you. That life in relationship to other Christians in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, 1, those realities, those two realities are very active. Right? Teach one another. The psalms and the spiritual psalms. Be done with the sins of the heart. Engage with one another with Think on things that are above, not on the earth. You, you're doing those things, right? You're avoiding the false teaching. You're making sure that people don't take you captive by only deceit, right? That's what you do. So it's not passive. The Christian life's not passive, but it is a life of utter dependence. To walk in him, then, means, which is an active reality, is to be in utter dependence on the Lord. To live out every aspect of your life in utter dependence on the Lord. Everything. It's all in Christ. The Christian life is a life of dependence. From your very first reception of Christ, the beginning of the Christian life, through its entirety as you walk in Him. It means you're established in true doctrine and theology and actively seeking to grow in your understanding of it. It means that Jesus, that Jesus works these two realities in you. That, you, that then turn you, and that then you turn and give thanks to God for, in awe and worship of Him. 
And that's how you receive Jesus. By depending on him. By trusting him. By looking to him to establish you in that teaching. By banking everything on him. And then giving thanks to him for what he has done on the cross. That's how you receive him. And it is in that exact same way that you walk in him. It is that same faith that produces a life of righteousness in him. So why does this matter? What's the significance of this way of living? First of all, if all of life in union with Christ is bound up in this utter dependence on Christ, what aspect of your life are you holding back? It's probably popping up in your head right now. What are you holding back? Is it your use of technology? Your sexual desires? Your money? Your relationships? friendships, your unwillingness to learn more about him, your unwillingness to avoid false teaching or your unwillingness to test it, your slowness to address the cultural pressures of our day in alignment to see them, whether or not they're in alignment with who Jesus is as our creator, redeemer, sacrifice, and wisdom. If there's anything in your life that is not aligned with Christ, be done Be done with it. Live in dependence on Jesus. Live by what is true and not by what is false. Second, if you if we live our Christian life in the same way that we, we receive Christ, in that life of dependence on Him as our sovereign creator, sovereign redeemer, that sacrifice and ministry and that wisdom then we're kept from two errors. On the one hand, we're kept from thinking that anything that we do, especially anything religious in nature, would somehow earn us favor with God. We did not receive Christ by religious upbringing or by service in love towards us, as good as those things are. We, we receive Christ by trusting Him as our sovereign Savior. We're redeemed by his blood alone. We add nothing to it. Nothing. And on the other hand, it causes us to give works their proper value. This is the second side. We think that, it, that, that we think too little of works. We are able to do good works, not out of not thinking we gain something from it, but out of under dependence on it. It's not an optional aspect of your life, obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not optional. It's intimately tied to your union with Him. How you live your life is intimately tied to your union with Jesus. Every part of your life is His. Every part. It's from Him and it's to Him. And that same heart of faith that receives Christ Jesus is the same heart of faith that's worked out in the ways we walk. As you receive Christ Jesus in the Lord, so Of redemptive history, 
the focus of all ministry and the source of all knowledge and wisdom, every aspect of your life as a Christian, especially the life of your mind and your life with fellow Christians, must be lived out in the same way that you began your life as a Christian. It must be. And if you're convinced that I'm right, that Paul is right, are you prepared to live by that for the future? Don't hold yourself back. Do not hold yourself back from living your life dependent on the one who defines reality. To do otherwise would be foolish. To do so brings everlasting satisfaction. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us to live such a life aid us in the life of our minds and in our relationships with others to be dependent on you, not only for right thinking, but for appropriate, an appropriate worldview, a way of engaging all of reality that aligns with the reality of Christ, who he is, what he has done. Help us to believe and live out those truths that accord with Jesus, our creator, redeemer, sacrifice and wisdom. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Young Adult Ministry at Bethlehem Baptist Church, North Campus in Moundsview, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.church slash young adults.